Good afternoon, and thanks for joining me today. This is Greg Lois, and we're going to have some fun today. We're going to talk about defending motions for med intent in New Jersey, uh, the dreaded motion for med intent. So let's jump in. Uh, I'm also going to talk uh, very briefly about some brief New Jersey rules, which might impact the way you defend claims and certainly should save you money. Uh, so let's start about what we're going to talk about today. Well, we're going to talk about medical care in general, and of course, when are we able to stop paying medical care? When what happens when medical care medical care ends? How do we terminate that care? I'm going to talk about uh, the different types of motion for temporary disability and medical treatment benefits, often called the motion for med intent. That's what I want to call it from here on out. And I'm also going to talk about emergent motions for med intent and how we defend those. I'm going to talk about uh, as much practical advice as I can possibly give you, uh, and my goal is to answer any questions you have live. This is a completely live uh, webinar, so please feel free to type in your questions as I'm going. There should be a little box uh, on your screen that you can type into. I can see your questions pop up, and I will read your question out loud at the end so everybody gets the benefit of your question, and then I will uh, answer it to the best of my ability. I will only say your first name uh, so I don't embarrass you, and I will read your question and give you my best answer. All right, uh, if you're here with me today, uh, hopefully it's because you're defending claims in New Jersey, and I've got some great news for you. As of last week, uh, Monday, August 16th, uh, the New Jersey Workers' Compensation Courts have a virtual hearing program in place. Uh, this is an amazing thing that's happened. It took them a very long time to adopt one system statewide, even though some of the judges are currently kind of doing their own things and not using the state system. They, are, they have standardized on Microsoft Teams. And according to the memo that was sent out by the chief judge, uh, most proceedings should be taking place via video conference. That is amazing, and this is going to result in tremendous cost savings to most of our clients, whether you're self-insured or a carrier. And the reason for this is one of the huge expenses in defending a workers' compensation claim in New Jersey is sending your attorney back and forth to court, right? These courts are all live. The judges um, call uh, a docket at 9 a.m. Your attorney has to be there. And then sometimes your attorney will just sit around and wait for that case to actually be conferenced with the judge of compensation. There's so much wait time. There's so much waiting around. Uh, there's so much travel to and from court where not a heck of a lot gets done. Well, guess what? Doing this via video conference or over team should save you money. Now, my practice, uh, we're about 35 attorneys here. Uh, we went virtual only into New York in 2018. We are fully set up to do virtual here in New Jersey. My New Jersey team of attorneys, uh, they are kicking butt and we are handling cases virtually and we are really pushing this. So I think this is going to be a great thing for most respondents and most employers on the state of New Jersey, just in terms of reducing attorney costs. You should see your average bills coming down and down uh, because of the use of this. Now, uh, we're very happy to talk to anybody who's looking for representation in New Jersey. That's why I do these webinars, is try to uh, you know, get our name out there and do some marketing. So please consider using us. If you want to ask me any questions about the New Jersey virtual hearing process, I'm very happy to answer any questions you have. All right. I am not wearing a suit and tie today. Uh, I am an attorney, and I'm not dressed like one today. I am wearing my Challenged Athletes Foundation t-shirt, and I'm wearing that for a reason. Uh, we are supporters of the Challenged Athletes Foundation here at Lois Law Firm. In fact, we uh, love them and we have partnered with them uh, to do uh, a great event next month. And I want to invite everybody who's out there watching this webinar or watching the recording to come to the event. Please be my guest. You are invited. Um, let me tell you, uh, the Challenged Athletes Foundation is an awesome foundation that provides 
assistive devices, the grants, uh, prosthetics, uh, all oriented towards returning disabled people to sport. Uh, it serves athletes of all ages. In fact, uh, coming to speak to Lois Law Firm this year, we've had kids, we've had adults uh, that, we, that are being supported with Challenge Athlete Foundation grants. Just a really great thing. We all know that one of the reasons that people don't return to work after a worker's comp injury uh, is because they have become socially withdrawn because uh, once they've been separated from that workplace, they don't have those connections to the workplace. We believe that sport is one of the ways that we can help people uh, make that transition back uh, from their disability and back from their injury and from their impairment. So we're huge supporters here. Uh, we are running an event on September 25, 2021. Uh, we are sponsoring this event. It is a uh, 5K walk-run fundraiser. Uh, you're all invited to come. Uh, I'm gonna send, I'm gonna put up right now on the screen uh, the little screenshot, you can screenshot that and find out more about the event. It is going to be held in North New Jersey in a beautiful park uh, called Dunkerhook Park. Uh, we're going to have tents, we've got vendors, we've got giveaways. It's going to be a lot of fun, so please join us. If you just want to make a donation, you're welcome to go to that page and make a donation. The firm is matching all donations made through that page right now. So uh, we're going to match all those donations and hopefully uh, turn over a good chunk of change to the challenge athletes so they can do what they do. Uh, if you want to come join us uh, for the uh, event, if you want to be a sponsor, hey, you're welcome to join. Uh, it's too late to get your name on the T-shirts yet, but uh, hey, we still got some room out there and we got some more uh, vendor space that you could you could come and uh, talk to people about what you do. Uh, so come out September 25th, and my invitation is anyone who's listening to this uh, webinar or watching this recording who wants to come be my guest, I will pay for your entry fee uh, to come and participate in the event on September 25. It is at 9.30 in the morning in North Jersey. So if you're in the New York, New York, uh, New Jersey area, very easy to get to. We're going to have about 75 people from this firm who are going to be there. You'll get to meet some of our vendors and sponsors. It'll be great. So come along. All right, uh, so that's my commercial for our Challenged Athletes Foundation. Uh, let's move into medical treatment in New Jersey. All right, this is what you actually signed up for, so let's jump into today's topic. Um, uh, medical treatment is one of the guaranteed and most basic things under the workers' compensation statute. New Jersey states that you have to provide medical care that is curative in nature. Once the uh, claimant's medical condition reaches a medical plateau, you are also responsible for providing uh, palliative medical care. That's the maintenance care that just keeps them at that level of functioning. Uh, the employer and carrier or, or carrier uh, selects the physician and the facilities. You've got a lot of power in New Jersey as the employer or carrier in that you get to approve or disapprove of the medical care that your uh, petitioner or claimant is obtaining. That's wonderful. It gives you a real powerful opportunity to direct care. We don't have a medical fee schedule in New Jersey. So my advice is uh, you get a part of a, uh, a network, uh, you know, either a PPO or an HMO, uh, or you put together your own contractual network. Uh, obviously, for my carrier-insured clients, uh, they are being given or directed to medical care uh, that the carrier has already vetted and put contracts in place for. Very important to do this. Uh, where your claimant is going out and getting medical care uh, that is outside of your network or outside of your contract, you're going to discover medical bills in New Jersey are unparalleled and unexcelled uh, by anyone. Uh, these are very creative medical billers, and you'll see giant numbers. 
Um, all pharmacy, all diagnostic care, you have the right to control and direct them. Any pharmacy you want. Most of our clients are using uh, prescription benefit cards or prescription benefit vendors to take care of that. And the same thing with diagnostic. All diagnostic tests need to be approved and authorized by the employer or carrier. So you should not see runaway uh, diagnostics in a New Jersey workers' comp case. You should not see multiple MRIs of the same body part or multiple studies. It really should be relatively straightforward. And again, you're getting to direct and control that. I say that uh, pre-litigation, 95% of the job uh, of the uh, risk professional is really controlling and directing care in New Jersey. And just remember, controlling and directing care means you can also send them to things like functional capacity evaluations to obtain determinations about their actual level of impairment and their ability to actually work at their prior job. So we strongly recommend that we take advantage of these functional capacity evaluation opportunities in New Jersey. And we'll even go so far as to recommend which facilities, particularly the ones that are using the computerized videos, that we think are the best to get the best functional capacity evaluations. Now, when we deny or dispute care in New Jersey, uh, the petitioner's only remedy to go get that care should be through the workers' compensation system. Uh, they should not be going out and getting the care on their own and then turning over a bill to you. They shouldn't be going, oh, you denied me this fourth MRI of my left shoulder. Well, I'm going to go get it anyway. Um, their only remedy is through the workers' comp system, and their remedy is to file a motion for medical and temporary disability benefits, which is essentially saying, judge of compensation, I need you to step in here at this point. I need you to order or direct my employer or workers' compensation carrier to give me this medical care that I so desperately need. Now, we'll talk about the proof that they have to show to the judge of compensation in a few minutes, but it's important to understand that they don't have some other remedy. They can't go outside of workers' comp. Uh, there have been cases uh, where uh, petitioners have said, I needed this medical care. My workers' compensation provider, uh, a carrier or employer refused to provide it. Uh, now I'm suing them for their negligence, okay? Uh, there is case law on this. They do not have the right to do that. Uh, they, they can even argue that there's bad faith. It doesn't matter. Uh, their treatment uh, and need for treatment should be handled through the workers' compensation system. So when they threaten you with this stuff and they say, I'm going to drag you into court and all these other things, really their remedy is through the workers' comp. And today I'm going to focus a lot on medical care because that's typically what should be the focus of a motion for medical and temporary disability benefits. But there's that other part and temporary disability benefits uh, that we should th think about. Wage replacement benefits. This is temporary total disability. Um, yes, it's possible for them to make a motion for that. However, a motion for temp without a demand for medical care as well should generally fail. All right. Uh, let's see. Why do we care about any of this stuff? Why do I care? First, uh, the reason we care about it is, well, generally we want to do the right thing for the claimant and we want to make sure that they get the medical care they need. Uh, generally speaking, you don't want to cede medical control in a workers' compensation case to the petitioner. They're probably not in the best decision to figure out what's the best diagnostic facility or how many Teslas that magnet should be in the MRI that's uh, going to be determining whether or not they have an injury to their spine. That's really up to you, the risk professional. So we don't want to lose that medical control. Uh, that medical control is the only way we can control costs of our medical care in the New Jersey workers' compensation system. Again, in this system, there is no um, medical fee schedule. So uh, these costs can, can uh, get very, very high if we're not controlling the medical in our cases. And the other reason is if the petitioner is represented by an attorney and they have to bring a motion seeking care be authorized or approved and they win, their attorney can demand a fee. And sometimes these fees uh, can be quite high where the cost of the medical care 
for example, a surgery with the necessary rehabilitation and aftercare, uh, you could see uh, $100,000 worth of medical treatment being provided. And then the attorney can demand a fee of up to 20% of all of the lost time and medical uh, benefit that they recover for their client. So in a $100,000 surgery case, which is, by the way, not out of bounds in New Jersey, we see giant bills like that, uh, the attorney can earn $20,000 simply for filing a few pieces of paper. So we have to be very careful and very defensive about these motions coming across. What are the parts of a motion and what should you be looking for? As the risk professional, sometimes these are served directly on you before the case is filed in court. More, most often, uh, the workers' compensation court case is proceeding and the motion is filed in the case, and we as your defense counsels will get served a copy of it. It is possible to file a motion for medical treatment before the workers' compensation case is even filed. So you as a risk professional might, for the when get your first notice of that there's going to be some litigation, when you get a copy of this order that's been served upon you. So just be thoughtful about that. Get that over to your defense counsel because it needs a legal response. Now, the burden is always on the movement in New Jersey workers' compensation. So the claimant's coming to before the court and saying, I need this specific medical care. Well, the law says they have to show that the, the, the treatment is necessary and curative. Okay, so necessary means it's required and curative means it's actually gonna get them better. It's actually gonna improve their condition. And that's defined by restoring function or reducing impairment. Um, the motion has to have a notice of motion, which is really just a legal document saying, hey, I need this medical care and I'm putting you on notice. So it's going to be identifying someone that's sent to. It's got to have the affidavit of the claimant or the claimant's attorney stating that this medical care was requested, demanded, uh, required, and not provided. And it needs a medical report of some kind. Uh, it cannot be based just on hearsay. It cannot be based simply on the affidavit. There has to be some note in there from some medical professional saying, uh, hello, I want to perform this medical procedure. I want to give this treatment to this uh, petitioner this needs to be approved and there has to be some sign of showing that it hasn't been approved. Okay, so those are the parts of your typical motion. Now, once that motion is filed, you as the risk professional are in the driver's seat. Oftentimes, these motions are filed over nonsense items. Um, sometimes they're filed for things like, I need eight more visits of physical therapy. Eight more physical, uh, of physical therapy, they're a hundred bucks a visit. That's $800. It's cheaper, maybe, to just authorize those visits than it is to defend the motion, even if you could win the motion. You could also compromise the motion as the risk professional. You can say, hey, you want eight more visits of physical therapy? I'll approve four. Will you withdraw the motion? And oftentimes that will get it resolved. Uh, we want to be careful, though, about negotiating with our adversaries in this instance. Uh, where they're going to compromise on a motion, you really shouldn't be paying them a fee, and I will challenge them on that. Uh, but let's say you can't compromise on the motion. The motion seeking treatment that we don't think is curative, necessary, uh, reasonable, or related. So what do we do? Well, in that instance, I'm balancing, I'm balancing a, a, a bottle of water on top of my computer keyboard over here. This is a little sketchy, so I don't know how this is going to go. Let's see. Uh, can, you, can you just grab this for me? Thank you. Okay. All right. Whew. All right, so what happens next? We can't compromise on this motion. We can't um, uh, agree to it. It's you know unnecessary, or maybe it's treatment that's already been provided, or maybe this claimant's just trying to build up their third-party case by getting more and more medical care in their workers' compensation action. So uh, what, what are the steps? What happens next? Well, when the motion is filed, um, 
we have to be paying special attention to the date that it's filed, the date that it's actually marked filed received by the court, okay? Because that's when our timeline's gonna start to run to respond to this motion and say, no judge, this medical care is not necessary. We're doing a good job managing this case and we're making sure that they're getting all the curative care that they need. We have 21 days from the date the motion is filed in order for us to file our response. That's when our answer is due. And this is a formal legal document that needs a signature on it. It needs to be filed in workers' compensation court. Um, we also have to get generally some kind of contradictory or um, uh, disputing medical evidence. Now, oftentimes the claimant will have gone out to their own doctor who says, uh, XYZ needs uh, an arthroscopic repair of the right shoulder. If we don't get some kind of contradictory or contravening medical um, to dispute that, we're generally not going to win the motion. So generally speaking, we're going out and we're getting some kind of independent medical evaluation to confirm that the treatment that's being demanded is not necessary. Okay, We have 30 days from the day the motion is filed to get that IME done. And then that needs to be filed and, and ready back in our hands in five more days, uh, received by us. So 35 days from the filing of the motion. Now, in practice, that's a very, very tight timeline and very, very difficult to meet. In fact, most of the times we don't meet that, and that's okay. Uh, the courts can relax that IME timeline, understanding that simply scheduling an IME and getting it done within uh, 30 days is very difficult in New Jersey. In fact, right now in New Jersey, some of the IME physicians that we work with are scheduling out into January and February of 2022, so that's how far backed up they are. Uh, by the way, next month, in this same webinar, the fourth Monday of the month, I'm gonna be talking about IMEs in New Jersey and giving you some ideas. All right, so now we get our IME report and now there's going to be a conference with the judge. If that conference, we can't resolve things, we can't compromise things, uh, the case will then go to trial and I'll walk through the trial procedure uh, in just one second. Now, all along these steps, motion's been filed, answers replied, uh, an independent medical exam is scheduled, an independent medical report is obtained and then finally get scheduled for a hearing with the judge, that's a lot of opportunity in there to, to work with your adversary, work with opposing counsel, and see if you can resolve the demands that are being brought in this motion. And most, uh, in our office at least, about 80% of motions for men and temp are resolved before they ever get before the judge of compensation. But sometimes they can't be resolved. And the next step will be to have that conference with the judge of compensation. During that conference, the judge is going to weigh in. They're, the judge is going to have the benefit of the treating doctor's report the doc, the, uh, or the, the claimant doctor report. They're going to have the benefit of that independent medical exam. They will oftentimes, because the judges in New Jersey really do spend the time on each individual case and will look through the medical records, they will look through the medical index and sort of say, hey, what kind of treatment did this person get? Both sides will be able to argue or present to the judge their points and try to be as persuasive they can. And generally at that conference, the judge of compensation is going to give you their opinion as to, hey, should this motion proceed or can you guys resolve this? Or maybe they'll tell the plaintiff's attorney, hey, this thing has no merit. We should throw this out. Let's say it can't be resolved and it needs to proceed to a trial. Uh, and some small percentage, maybe 10 to 15% of uh, motions actually do proceed to some beginning trial. What's the procedure for that? So a trial on medical benefits always begins with the petitioner testifying. And really the petitioner has to say, yeah, it hurts. And yeah, if I was offered this medical treatment, I would take it, okay? And that's critical testimony to get from the petitioner. There are so many times that I've got a petitioner up on the stand and they're demanding some kind of crazy surgery or platelet replacement therapy or something else. 
and I turned to the claimant, I go, you know, uh, are you, do you want this surgery that your doctor is recommending? And the petitioner will say, well, I'm a little scared of it. I'm not sure if I want it. I think I do. I go, judge, what are we doing here? This is not emergent. This is not even urgent. They're not even certain they want this treatment that the doctor is recommending. Judge, take this off the motion list. Okay, so that's an opportunity to also question the petitioner about what their uh, their pain level is, what their level of impairment is, really trying to get to the basics of the case. Now, because the petitioner testifies first, and then there's going to be some type of adjournment before we can either present our witnesses, uh, if we want to present fact witnesses, oftentimes in a motion for med intent, you don't, because it's just a medical issue. The next step really is typically for them to bring in their next, their medical witness. And this is going to be the doctor who's saying, hello, I want to perform this procedure or they need this treatment to cure this condition. Okay, so that's going to be a very specific person. Uh, the court rules allow them to bring in this uh, witness via video, which is great. That's fine. But oftentimes between the petitioner testifying and then them having to bring their own witness into court, these cases will resolve or compromise. And it's simply because it's, it's a pain and effort for the petitioner's attorney to secure the testimony time, to set up the video link, to do all the basic things they need to do to bring their own witness to court. This is typically where you resolve a lot of these medical benefit issues. After uh, the petitioner's medical witness has testified, then it would be time for our witness. And that's generally gonna be our independent medical evaluator. Uh, again, they can testify via video, which does save us a lot of time, uh, effort, and expense, which is useful. And after that, the judge will be able to weigh in and give a decision uh, about whether or not this uh, medical care is going to be authorized. Now, I'm going to talk about the actual judgment from the judge in a slide, in just a couple slides. All right. There's also something in New Jersey called an emergent motion uh, for medical and temporary disability benefits. Uh, these are really rarely used. I mean, there's less than 100 a year. It certainly might be less than 50 a year of these even filed in the division. Uh, we rarely see them. In order to file an emergent motion, the petitioner has to be saying, I need medical care. And if I don't get this medical care, I'm literally going to die or suffer irreparable harm. And that's a very high standard. And, and really, that doesn't happen in, in New Jersey workers' comp. It's very rare. The emergent motion procedure was created to give that petitioner a very quick, very fast response from both the court and their adversary as to whether this care is going to be authorized and provided. A typical motion for medical and temporary disability benefits takes months to resolve, months to resolve in the workers' comp court. The emergent motion procedure was created so that it would take weeks. So this is, a, this is a very short procedure. So what happens here is first, a motion is filed. The paperwork on this motion is a little different uh, than the standard motion for medical and temporary disability benefits because the claimant has to show irreparable harm. They have to show that they're literally going to die uh, or suffer some kind of irreversible harm if this motion is not granted. And then again, that filters most of them out. We then, as the defense or respondent, have five days to respond with our answer. We then have uh, a conference with the judge of compensation uh, within five days of that. Oftentimes, as soon as the emergent motion is filed, I'll have a day or two to file my answer and we'll have a phone call with the judge right then. Very, very, very quick. Judges absolutely spend a lot of time um, making sure that these are urgent and treated as a priority. We only have 15 days to get our IME, so that's incredibly hard. And then the judge is going to make a continuous trial decision. Now, most trials in New Jersey are non-continuous. That just means you do petitioner's testimony one week, you might come back six weeks later, and then we'll take their lay witness testimony. You may come back six weeks after that and then take their medical testimony. You may come back six weeks after that and present our medical testimony. 
a continuous trial is just what it sounds like. It's just like, what do you imagine when you watch TV shows with, with a trial that starts on a Monday and they get as far as they can into the trial. And if it's not done Monday afternoon, they come back and do the trial on Tuesday and go day after day. Extremely rare in a New Jersey workers' compensation context to have a continuous trial. It's more challenging because it means we don't have a lot of decision points and things are gonna be a bit accelerated. But again, for these emergent motions, it's done to really try to protect the petitioner from possibly suffering irreparable harm, which is the standard. All right, uh, how do we defend motions? I'm gonna to try to give you as much practical advice that I've gathered over the last 20 plus years of defending these. Um, first, you gotta know the rules. There are a lot of rules surrounding these motions. Your defense counsel should be very carefully looking at the motion as it's filed and making sure it actually complies with the rules as they actually exist. Uh, and what I mean by that is I've seen so many of these motions where there's no affidavit uh, uh, from the claimant stating that they would actually take the medical care or it's missing a medical report and it's just based on the hearsay or claims of the claimant themselves uh, or it's just signed by an attorney with no medical report attached. You know, you got to look to the rules and make sure the motion isn't defective on its face. Um, I will tell you this. This is one instance where the judge of compensation that reviews the motion will generally say, hey, look, if the motion is incomplete, I'm not hearing it. Right. I'm not I'm not going to go through all these extra effort if you're not going to submit a complete motion. So first thing is making sure the complete motion is in place. The next thing is and I know this is going to sound really crazy, but the rules do require a very speedy response. Twenty one days. To in, as a responsive pleading is quick. So make sure you actually file the answer. Now, New Jersey is a very informal state, uh, which means uh, people are generally very, the practitioners on both sides of the bar are generally very civil to each other. They generally uh, try to be as professional as they can and give each other leniency. Uh, sometimes we'll see defense counsel like just get lazy and they're filing these kinds of motions real late. Uh, they are not filing them, uh, filing the answers, I'm sorry, to them really late, not timely. And for that reason, uh, they sort of fall out of the habit of doing these things quickly. Our advice is not to seek leniency or not to compromise on the timelines. File that answering statement quickly. Put it out there. Make sure you're protecting uh, all of your rights and raising all defenses in that answering statement. You know, if you don't raise the defense in the answering statement, you're effectively waiving that defense. Um, next, we also recommend being prepared to actually present proofs. It used to be a lot more difficult to secure our testimony in court, and sometimes it would be the, uh, the testimony of, of a co-employee who would say, hey, the accident never happened. This motion seeking treatment for this thing is not related to the workplace. Uh, now it's so easy. I don't even have to bring people out of the employment. They don't have to miss a day of work. They can appear in court over Microsoft Teams. That's a great thing for us. Same thing with our medical proofs. Medical proofs can now be submitted via video. That's gonna save a ton of time and effort and blood and treasure, scheduling, and the difficulty of arranging an IME doctor and the cost. I mean, the cost for a half a day of testimony, $2,500, $3,500, but the cost for testifying for 45 minutes over video significantly reduced. So that's gonna be very, we should be thoughtful that presenting the proofs now is easier than ever because we can uh, do it more easily. Never forget about the basics. As I told you earlier, the claimant has to demonstrate that they want this medical care, that a medical provider is saying they should get this medical care, and that they actually requested it from us, and we said, no, we're not approving it. Oftentimes, the claimant will submit a demand for some kind of exotic treatment or a prescription, or they want a diagnostic test, 
and they're just not happy that their risk professional hasn't gotten back to them that day or maybe the next day or even within three days. And so they get angry and just file a motion. Well, that's not how it works. Just because your medical provider tells you when you leave their office, hey, I think you need an MRI. Uh, you should get it done soon so we can determine if you need surgery. That, that medical provider doesn't instantly give the medical uh, information to your risk professional. Maybe you're, the adjuster needs a couple of days to digest it and figure out what they're going to do. But oftentimes we'll see a claimant not even tell the risk professional that this has been requested by an authorized provider. And it's certainly before maybe the medical records had an opportunity to be reviewed by the risk professional and the motion's already filed. So the burden is on the claimant to show that not only did someone say that they needed this medical care, but that they then came to us, the employer carrier, and asked for it and we said no. So they have to actually meet that. The last thing we say is there is a standard called Benson versus Coca-Cola, which says if the claimant gets medical care, first uh, and then and maybe it's emergent maybe it's urgent maybe uh, we couldn't have possibly approved it right so there would be some futility to even asking us to approve this medical care as long as the care in hindsight was curative it reduced impairment it increased function it should be found compensable uh, but that standard doesn't mean they get to skip this request for authorization it's really a hindsight test and it should not be applied but sparingly so um, generally, how we defend uh, these type of motions, uh, again, I'm going to say this a couple times. First, really establish if they actually want the treatment that they're now demanding. Uh, I want them to go on the record saying, I would accept this care that I'm looking for, particularly with some invasive surgeries, or sometimes experimental treatments that the claimant is seeking. You really want to have a four-level fusion? Are you sure you understand the risks associated with this? Uh, next. Uh, have they already turned down the care? There are so many instances where the claimant's been offered a course of medical care, they turn it down, six months later they come back and say, now I wanna do it, now I don't. You know, be thoughtful about whether or not we've actually met our burden and offered this to them. If they refuse care under section 19, it's essentially saying, I'm fine, I'm at MMI. So the claimant doesn't have the right to, you know, uh, turn away care, refuse curative care, and then later, six months, a year later, uh, say, oh, now I want that. That, that should be uh, held against the claimant. They've been offered it and they refused it. The other thing I want to remark, and I think we haven't talked about it that much except for right at the beginning, is that a motion should always be seeking some type of medical care. A motion seeking nothing but temporary disability benefits is defective on its face, and you should be defending and winning on that in your legal arguments. All right. What happens after an order is entered? So, Greg, we have now gone through the whole uh, proceeding. Claimant made a demand for care. We refused it. We didn't think it was necessary. Um, they then filed a motion for med and temp. We went before a judge. Uh, we had a full trial. They presented their proofs. We presented our proofs. And now an order has been entered. Here's where I want you to be careful. And I want to explain all of your options. First, these are appealable as of right. The money is moving. A decision has been made. You can appeal that decision. You don't, the whole case doesn't have to wait until the end of the case when you're on to issues of permanency or residual disability. You don't have to wait for that. You can appeal that decision right then, and we've done that. I had an appellate level decision uh, in which we prevailed, in which the judge in the uh, motion for med and temp case uh, determined that the claimant was the employee of my alleged uh, employer, my insured. And I said, he's not my employee, absolutely not. I'll present witnesses that say he isn't. The judge said, well, I'm going to grant the motion for med and temp, and we'll figure out that issue of employment later. 
okay, I'm appealing you. Well, you appealed that. I took it to the appellate division, and we prevailed. So you can win on this stuff, even though it would seemingly be interlocutory uh, in your case in chief. So that's something to be thoughtful about. Number two, take a look at the specific wording of the order, particularly an order that is entered against you as the employer or carrier. If an order has been against, ordered, entered against you saying you are now responsible or liable for providing this medical treatment, I want this to be as narrowly tailored as possible, okay? I want to exclude all the follow-on treatment. If the motion for med intent was for a specific surgery, I want the order to say the surgery is authorized and shall be provided by the, uh, by the employer, uh, all fees, uh, for this treatment are the responsibility of the employer. Something very basic like that. And the reason for that is I want to constrain uh, what the uh, medical, the, the fee, the attorney's fee is going to be based on. It should really be based on just what was in that motion that now the judge is ordering me to do. Now, the truth is, after the person gets the surgery, they're probably going to need some physical therapy, some rehabilitation. There's probably going to be some medical management, some prescriptions that are going to be done. Yeah, those things might be related, but I'm going to argue the motion was for the surgery and not for all this aftercare or follow-on care. I, I want that held out of the motion. That should be separate. So I really want very clear and concise language so that we don't end up at the end of the case with the judge saying, well, uh, they won that surgery. I said it was for the surgery and the attorney's fee is to abide. And now it's a year later, they've gotten all this treatment, it's been $100,000, so the attorney's fee is now $20,000. Be careful. I want, when an order is entered, it to be narrow, narrowly tailored, and then I want the judge to put the attorney's fee on that order. And even if we have to guesstimate, I'd prefer to do that early, uh, rather than let the fee hang until after all the treatment's done, because that's just giving my adversary, opposing counsel, an opportunity to sort of just throw more and more medical treatment into the case and claim that everything that comes after, uh, they're entitled to a fee on. So that's something to be very thoughtful about. All right, we've been through the filing of the motion, how we defend the motions, and then even what happens after the order is entered, if it's entered against you. Uh, so we've really seen this uh, topic from top to bottom. Let's look at some questions and answers, and I hope you have some questions and answers. Um, even if it's just to say, Greg, I can't wait to see you at the, uh, at the calf walk, in a couple of weeks. All right, a bunch of questions. Looks like Dave asked a couple, so I'm going to try to get through as many of these as I can. Dave asks, uh, David H asks, if not discussed, what's the process of disputing reasonable and necessary medical fees? Uh, dispute over the surgeon and our hospital billing. Okay, so there's a lot of disputes over that, and why the reason is uh, because there's no fee schedule in New Jersey. So generally speaking you should be engaging in contractual agreements with all of the medical providers that your risk professional, your adjuster, your insurance carrier, uh, your third-party administrator is sending this petitioner to. Uh, they should have those agreements in, in advance. You should have a PPO or an HMO or a preferred provider network, wherever you wanna call it, where, hey, these are the physicians and the facilities that we steer these people towards. And you'll negotiate your prices in advance. Those prices might be, hey, we're going to take you, we're going to do the Medicare fee schedule plus 10%. Uh, we're going to do the New Jersey uh, no-fault insurance fee schedule plus 2% or whatever you want to do to come up with them, uh, that's fine. Um, 
but sometimes, particularly in an emergent circumstance, you know, someone's at work, a chainsaw get, gets out of control and it cuts their arm off, they're going to the local emergency room, which you might not have a agreement in place with, and that local emergency room is going to call in whatever uh, hand surgeon is on call, and that hand surgeon is going to come in and do whatever they can do, and that might not be a hand surgeon that you have a, a, contra a contractual arrangement with. And you're going to get this giant bill, and this bill might be for $600,000, I'm just making up a number, uh, for the, the work to try to restore the person's hand functions. Um, what happens next? You tell them, hey, I'm going to pay you $60,000. That's the fair value of two hours of surgery in New Jersey, let's say. And they say, no, I'm not accepting that. I want $600,000. They can file their own separate application uh, for provider payment. It pens in New Jersey Workers' Compensation Court, and a New Jersey judge of compensation will make the determination as to what that medical fee should be based on um, basically prevailing standards. Now, New Jersey um, is a usual and customary state. Um, what is usual and customary? Obviously, we're going to argue usual and customary is, hey, what's in the PIP fee schedule? Or what's in, you accept Medicare, and then Medicare is usual and customary for you. And, oh, you take cash payment? What do, what do cash payers pay? So we're going to try to figure out uh, the most advantageous way of paying the exact right amount for that surgery. Uh, but there is a procedure. The provider who is unhappy with the amount of money they've been paid, feel like they've been shorted. And, and generally, this is going to come up in the emergent circumstance. Um, you know, the burn victim who's taken to the burn hospital. And, you know, we don't maybe have an established relationship with a, a preferred provider network with a burn surgeon. Uh, or for, I see it a lot with hands. Um, you know, it's a very specialized surgery. And we don't have someone in our preferred provider network who's on call at that location. Uh, and so for that reason, you can see some of these uh, bills come through. Uh, Dave also asked the question, what's the typical witness fee cost for the doctor to attend the hearing? So for us, it's negotiable, right? And in, in old days, uh, it was thousands of dollars for a half day. We'd, we'd reserve you for a half day of, of court, uh, reserve the provider for a half day of court, and it would be thousands of dollars. Nowadays, uh, they're appearing versus, via Microsoft Teams. So that should be significantly negotiated down because the amount of time that we're probably going to need them for um, and the length of time I'm going to keep them sitting around on ice, just waiting in the courtroom for the judge to come out on the bench, it's going to be significantly reduced. All right. Um, Dave says, can we push for settlement? Yeah, you can settle the case uh, when a motion for med intent is filed. You can settle either the issue that's in the motion for med intent or the entire case. You can settle any of that stuff that you want. Uh, okay, this is a great one. This question says, Greg, does New Jersey use the occupational disability guidelines? Uh, if so, and the treatment falls outside the occupational disability guidelines, does that assist with defending our motion to deny? No. New Jersey Workers' Compensation Court does not recognize occupational disability guidelines. Um, they don't recognize the AMA guidelines for establishing or determining disability or impairment. Um, we really are, we're a whole man state, which means uh, it's the uh, impairment on the person that's going to determine their overall disability. And there are no specific New Jersey guidelines uh, for that. It is really rule of thumb and practical experience. So uh, yeah, in other states like New York, where we have something called medical treatment guidelines, uh, we can use those as the argument that, hey, this is the care pathway this care should take. And you guys are over here doing this other thing. That shouldn't be allowed. That's how it's in other states. New Jersey does not have that system. Because the employer 
and insurance carrier can direct and control care completely, uh, it's really, there's no limits on how we can direct and control care. We'll we can see generally that the employer or carrier uh, really want to get the person back to work as fast as humanly possible, really looking for the most curative, cost-effective treatment we can possibly find. Um, oftentimes, though, there are other motivations at work, particularly secondary gain at work, uh, which works against that. So at this time, there are no occupational disability guidelines that would impact impairment ratings in New Jersey. All right. Uh, I think those are the questions. Thanks for sticking around, for everybody who stuck around. I hope to see you guys all at my walk. Please send me a message. Uh, you can even send me a message right now. Say, hey, I want to participate, and I will absolutely make sure that you have a really cool T-shirt and hat and all the other stuff that's going to be in our swag bag and a space reserved for you on uh, September 25th. I look forward to seeing everybody next time. Uh, and until then, I hope you have a great week and a great month. Bye, guys.